pray together. Father, thank you for that beautiful musical portrayal of the truth of our Savior. His coming for us, his love for us, your great mercy to us and forgiveness. Lord, I pray that our hearts might join in the statement of that song to believe, to embrace the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Christ has died for us that we might have salvation. I pray this morning now as we uh, once again have opportunity to journey into your word that you will choose to have your word find its way into our hearts. That for those of you who, for those who love the Lord, I pray, Father, that we will be further strengthened and encouraged by your word. And if there's anyone who has joined with us today and does not yet know you as Savior, that the power of your saving work through your word through the Holy Spirit might work powerfully in lives today, oh God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we will have uh, our family Christmas service. If you know families with children, uh, you might want to let them know that. It'll be at six o'clock. And uh, you can... Register on our website for that. There's the, a familiar or a common song that is shared regularly at Christmas. I think a guy by the name of Mark Lowry made it famous. Mary, did you know? I'm sure it will be heard at least a few times this Christmas. Well, today I want to answer that question. What did Mary know? She actually knew a lot. You know, every year as we revisit uh, the glories of Christmas truth, uh, I find myself approaching the preparation for that with kind of the same burden. Lord, give me something uh, fresh and enable me to once again have a passion for your truth that's so common. We know it. So many of us have heard it so many times. And then I wait on the Lord. I wait for him to answer. And I would say that the current moment that we're in, combined with the ever-present treasures of the glories of God's word, have combined this year and given me actually a new enthusiasm after these many Christmases that I've preached. It seems to me that, and I've, I've... uh, sort of awakened to new, new vistas of, of emotion and truth that are contained in the Christmas message simply because of the context that we find ourselves in. I think you're going to see the same thing as we journey here. Um, I want you, if you would, to turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at um, verses 26 and following, but... Um, it seems to me that in so many ways, the emotion of the moment is, is very much a parallel to the situation that we find ourselves in only 
to a lesser degree for certain. But I think it opens up some new things for us. Luke chapter 1, I'm going to be reading from verse 26 to 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. That's underlined in my Bible. Is that underlined in yours? I'm sure it is. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Well, this is the word of God. Remember now that Luke, writing this gospel, did a thorough investigation after the facts himself. And he writes to this individual called Theophilus. We don't really find out who Theophilus is. There's lots of theological ideas there, but I think for our sake, it's, it's interesting to note that Theophilus, he was trying to explain to Theophilus some things that he probably wouldn't know and, and maybe was, uh, well, quite unfamiliar to him. And it, it, it strikes me that the details that he gives and, and the pictures that he paints and represents, of course, represent a thousand words to any audience. And, and the audience of the first century who, who read this uh, presentation of Luke would be hanging on the words and the descriptions and they absolutely brought a, a, a significant emotional response. And, and I want to work, work through that in, in, by way of introduction this morning. So it seems to me like Luke said, hey Theophilus, maybe without the hey, but hey Theophilus, in the sixth month, and as soon as that, that number and description came out, it, it was referring, of course, to what he had already told Theophilus about a, a couple named Zachariah and, and Elizabeth who were now uh, expecting a baby and were in their sixth month. This was a miraculous pregnancy as he launches the description here already that, that God has already done something miraculous in the life of a, of a couple. And then he says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth and Theophilus is like, Nazareth, never heard of the place. And so he says to him, well, it's a town in Galilee. And um, it's an obscure place. Now, when, when the word Nazareth was read by the Jewish audience of that day, it meant a whole lot to them. 
and conjured up a whole uh, raft of emotions. But we'll get to that in a moment. But Theophilus doesn't know about Nazareth and he doesn't, he finds out, well, it's, it's a town in Galilee. You know, I've been in the area now for 20 years and I'm still a hack when it comes to villages and towns around us. In fact, I learned of a new one this past week. Someone said to me, they come from Bethany. I was like, Bethany? You mean the Bethany? No, no, Bethany around here. I had never, I didn't know there was a Bethany around here. You all know there's a Bethany around here? Sure you do. I told you I'm a hack with that. And, and Theophilus, he didn't know, where, where's this Nazareth? But to the Jews, to, to those in, in the day, I mean, we only have to read a little bit further into the Gospels in John chapter 146, and, and this bold statement is made, and, and rather ignorant and rude statement, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was the prevailing attitude toward this. That, that God would do something in Nazareth? That's preposterous. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And by the way, that was uttered by Philip, who happened to have a Greek name himself. He seemed to think he was somewhat uh, above the people of Nazareth. And, and the ridiculous part is he came from Bethsaida himself, which was, well, it, it's like somebody from Curtis saying, can anything good come out of Pickering? I mean, seriously, you're in the same area. You're in the same, you know, you're the same kind of people. You're the same region. Really? That's what he says. And, of course, this was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, verse 3, when it was stated of Messiah, he was despised and held in low esteem. Why? Because his hometown was Nazareth. Interestingly, he proceeded to load up his followers, his disciples, from a ragamuffin group from Galilee and presented them to the world to change the world. <laughs> I think that's, as we read through the scriptures, the way God always works. Most of us, if not all of us in here, are a bunch of ragamuffins who God has graciously gathered in his family and has invited us to be his disciples and to go and change the world? Not many of us were wise. Not many of us were high standing. Not many of us came from highfalutin cities somewhere. We're a bunch of ragamuffins. Later on in the scriptures, also in the gospel of John, when the religious leaders are getting together to investigate the credentials of Jesus, in John chapter 7, verse 49 and 52, the, the great irony oozing from this text also is, uh, is when uh, several of the religious leaders uh, are commenting about, about Jesus and, and uh, you know, him being a prophet, maybe a prophet, and, and uh, the high priest says, this mob that knows nothing of the law, which you're going to see in a moment is pretty ironic, look into it. And you will find that no prophet arises from Galilee. Notwithstanding that in Isaiah 9.1, it had already been prophesied 800 years before, that in the future, he, God, will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. So who actually didn't know the law? Imagine the high priest himself did not know the law. It's referring, of course, to Zebulun and Naphtali and the tribe, the northern tribes of Israel. 
it's critical for us to note that, that Luke was, uh, the, the, the focus on Nazareth in bold letters, basically, was, was a, a intentional motion grabber. The Jews of the south, the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jews of Judea, had issues with the Galileans, historic issues with the Galileans. See, it, goes, it, it, would, it was dating back uh, hundreds of years before, in uh, 150 years before Jesus, the Maccabean Revolt, at the time of the Maccabean Revolt, it was considered in the, in the region of Galilee, it was considered Jewless. It, it was thought that, the, that the, when the Assyrians had invaded the nor, north of, of Israel in, in 722 a, uh, BC, that, that basically there was a assimilation of the, of the Jews of the north. And, and you had this buffer zone. You had Judea in the south. You had Samaria in the middle. And then you had Galilee in the north. Everybody knew the Samaritans that were, I mean, they were, they were uh, disregarded and, 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 and completely, uh, um, uh, you know, completely racially biased against them. But but the Galileans, there was something like, who are they? What are they? Are, are they they're, they're not really us. They're not really a part of us. And, and, and every uprising that ever occurred in Israel was, would, would come out of Galilee. They were, they were disturbed with the government. They were disturbed with the economy. Their social and economic dissent was sure to rise out of Galilee. That was their history. That was what was going on there. They had different accents than the people in the south. You know, remember when Peter was, was denying his Lord and Savior at the crucifixion, it was the, the slave girl who said to him, your, your accent betrays you. I you know you're from Galilee. I know you're one of them. They were despised. This, Jesus, Jesus was already in, with his, his men and his group, was, was already um, rejected and despised by those in the big city of Jerusalem. Any political dissent or rabble-rousing was from the outer banks of Galilee. They had questionable ancestry. And this is where God chose to do amazing work. Into a place of cultural and social outcasts. And maybe you can relate at a time that was inconvenienced and people were just frankly angry with the government. We wouldn't know anything about that. A census was called that they should have to come from their, wherever they were scattered to their ancestral homes, their ancestral cities. And it wasn't to take a population census. It was that, but the purpose of the population census, everybody knew. Pax Romana was now going to become Tax Romana. The, the peace of Rome was now going to be loading up their coffers with tax money so they could expropriate more of the world. And people were frankly angry and inconvenienced. You've got this combination of Nazareth where people were... What can come out of Nazareth? That's, that's a disgusting place with disgusting people. We're mad at the government. We're inconvenienced. And into that moment, God drops 
one of the most significant, in fact, the most significant event in all of human history. That moved us to Calvary. It's a particular context to strengthen a particular message, and I want to see you to see this message move all the way through the text. God is good, and God is sovereign. Always. God is always good in the midst of bad, in the midst of confusion, in the midst of hard, in the midst of rancor, in the midst of, of frustrations and inconvenience, impatience, in the, in the midst of questions, in the midst of your frustrating background and moment, God is good. And God is sovereign. God is not thwarted by any of the things that we view as impossible obstacles or hurdles. God continues to move his plan ahead. He's completely free to move his plan forward in this earth. And Luke says to Theophilus, you see, Theophilus, there was this quiet young virgin maiden from Nazareth who found favor with God. I mean, Mary was anticipating a quiet, um, non-eventful or uneventful life in a backwater town that most people had no respect for, and the God of gods, almighty God, it is announced to her, has favor on her. That's my story. If you know the Lord, that's probably your story. Nothing special about you, nothing you deserved. In fact, you deserve quite the opposite. I deserved quite the opposite. God finds favor with her. She's going to live a life of obscurity and her life was about to change. And no one could see that coming. So Mary, did you know? Yeah, actually, she knew a lot. So I want to share with you in the time that's remaining what Mary actually knew. There are three miracles of Christmas that um, I want to present to you this morning. And the outline that I'm using is actually borrowed from St. Bernard of Clairv Clairvaux. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, I, think, I know you're thinking of a dog, but this is this. St. Bernard started out as a, a priest in uh, 1090, lived 1090 through 1153. He outlined the sermon this morning. Interestingly, 450 years later, Martin Luther borrowed this sermon outline from St. Bernard. 450 years later, I'm borrowing this sermon outline from both Martin Luther and St. Bernard of Clairvaux. I hope that's okay. It seemed good over the last thousand years. I'm sure it will probably be okay this morning. Here's what Mary knew. She knew that God and man should be joined in the Christ child. She knew that that mother, her, should remain a virgin throughout the birth. She, 
and, and Mary, she, she knew that Mary should have such faith as to believe that this mystery, the other miracle was that Mary should have such faith as to believe that this mystery would be accomplished in her. And St. Bernard of Clairvaux found the last miracle of the three the greatest, that Mary would actually believe this. I, I'm not sure that I want to, to list any uh, priorities to these miracles, but I, I've got to admit that for me personally, that God would give me the grace to believe in his salvation is the greatest miracle for me. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. And so I can sort of concur with St. Bernard that, that the faith to believe is such a gracious and amazing miracle that God does in our lives. So let's plow in. The first is the unthinkable, the incarnation. That God and man should be joined. You know, in the text, it, it outlines descriptions of this child, that he'll be great, verse 32. That he will, uh, verse 33, that he will reign over the house of Jacob. Verse 35, that he'll be holy. These are incredible titles that, that, that um, God is... is uh, or that, that Jesus would be great, superior greatness. It, it was it stated before that that John the Baptist, the, the child of, of, of Zachariah and Elizabeth, would be considered great in the eyes of God, but that's a derived greatness. Jesus would be great in and of himself just because of who he is. He would be holy, perfect, and sinless. He would reign over the promised forever throne of, of his ancestor David. All of these were great titles that people were waiting for, but, but the, the greatest of them are the two that are stated this way. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be called the Son of God. That was mind-blowing, <laughs> To Mary, Mary was told this, that God is to be born in human flesh. That's what she was told. That's what we're told in the text here. The incarnation, God taking on flesh. That God is revealing his plan to become part of his creation. This is, I mean, we become used to it. If you've been in... Uh, follow, if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for years and years, you've become sort of used to this. But this was first announced to her. This was completely mind-blowing. And to the early Jews reading this, this was completely mind-blowing to them. This message of God becoming part of creation. But this was a fulfillment of a promise that they should, uh, a, a prophetic promise that they should have seen coming but maybe we can't be too hard on them. It was promised in the Garden of Eden. That's why we began this series, why Pastor Kelvin uh, started us in the Garden of Eden in this series. Because in fact, this is now the announced fulfillment of a prophecy from Genesis 3.15. When, when God was announcing to Adam and Eve upon the, their sin, what was going to happen. In, in, in Genesis 3.15, this statement is made. And now we're getting the full meaning of the garden promise being revealed to us. 
There will be enmity between your seed. He spoke to the serpent. God spoke to the serpent, representative of Satan. There will be enmity between your seed, your Zara, and her Zara, her seed. He, from her seed, her Zara, will crush your head, the serpent or Satan. Now, you're looking at me, okay. When this proclamation was made and the juxtaposition of her and seed was indelibly placed for all of scriptural history, a flashing red light is going off to the readers down through the ages who would be continually looking at that and saying, I don't know what God really means by that because you never juxtapose feminine and seed throughout the scriptures. It's always the male seed, never female seed. Now suddenly, bursting on the scene in the New Testament is the proclaimed fulfillment of Genesis 15. The fullness of this being revealed that Mary, this one that will be born, is not coming from a human man's seed. This one to be born is from your seed. Her seed will crush the head of Satan. This is a amazing moment for all theological scholars who were finally getting the answer to what does this mean, waiting on God all of these centuries to help understand what he meant. But here it is, bursting the scene. Now, to a Jewish woman like Mary, who was taught all of her life about the incredible supremacy of Almighty God, so much so that the ancients wouldn't even utter his name with familiarity. They, they wouldn't write out his name. They would write characters and then leave gaps because he's so holy, so awesome, so almighty. We're not worthy to utter his name or write his name. And suddenly, Mary is expected to believe that God would condescend to become a human and live among us. Isaiah 9, 6, lurking in the prophetic calendar, notwithstanding that a child would be, bo a child would, uh, a child would be born, a son would be given. That's why Jesus faced so much criticism. Whenever he uttered anything that came close to divinity, they understood a God in heaven, but there's no way a God on earth as well. Absolutely not. So to the Jewish audience, the Jewish monotheists, this was unthinkable. To the Gentile world, it was unacceptable. The pagan world did not have any place in their understanding of things for the spirit world to merge with the physical world. There was no place for that. So in both directions, Jesus was a total anomaly. And then to our modern world, 
The incarnation is dismissed or explained away. Explained away by liberal theologians who suggest, look, Jesus was just a man. And somewhere along the way, God, you know, empowered him with his spirit. But he wasn't the God-man. The Jesus of a normal human birth is not the one who can save us. An imperfectly human Jesus could only die for his own sins. You can't have a savior that is going to line up to receive the wages of sin. Salvation requires both mercy and justice. And the only way both mercy and justice could take place is if the one paying the penalty of sin was not sinful himself. Otherwise, you have to surrender the attributes of God one way or the other. He was merciful in his forgiveness. He was just in the payment of the penalty of our sin. That's the message of the gospel. Secondly, uh, this thing is unimaginable. A virgin birth? No way. For God, but for God and man to join in incarnation required a once-in-history exception. It required a virgin birth. That's why Mary asked the angel, well, how, how is this going to be? How, how am I going to become pregnant? I don't know a man. And the answer from the angel was, in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. What did Mary know? Mary knew this. Mary knew this, that you will become pregnant. It's interesting that the ancients actually, and I'm talking, when I'm talking about the ancients, the people contemporaneous with the time of Christ, really didn't make a big deal uh, about the virgin birth. You won't find, you find it early in the text, but you won't find it as you move through. They never, they never uh, talked about that. They never threw that uh, on the table. Why? Because they didn't believe it. The people contemporaneous with Jesus never believed. That was the scandal of Jesus. As far as they were concerned, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Joseph was around. Mary got pregnant and had a baby. That's what happened. And the, real, the way we know that is three chapters later, in Luke chapter 3, 23, in what I think is pr- probably the genealogy of Mary, although I, we're not sure, but, but for our purposes right now, Luke 3.23 says this, when it's referring to Jesus' heritage, he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Luke does his research. As far as they were concerned, this was a child out of wedlock. So they never made a big deal about it. That was, that was already the scandal of Mary, that the burden that she carried. It's only in later years, in in contemporaneous time, our times, and further on that the virgin birth became a big deal. Donald McLeod wrote this, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas, and none of us must think of hurrying past it. 
It stands on the threshold of the New Testament, blatantly supernatural, defying our rationalism, informing us that all that follows belongs to the same order as itself, and that if we find it offensive, there is no point in proceeding further. The, the glories of Christ, the, the greatness of God, bursts on the scene in the New Testament with the miraculous. If you're not prepared to handle that, it almost shouts at you, don't bother reading any further because the God that's portrayed in the New Testament is a God who is good and a God who is sovereign and a God who's miraculous, a God who's powerful, a God who's almighty. If you can't swallow that, if you can't accept that, then the New Testament isn't for you. Is it necessary to believe in the virgin birth? Well, if the virgin birth isn't true, and God is not the father of Jesus, then Jesus isn't the only begotten son. And if Jesus isn't the only begotten son, then we are still lost in our sins. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If God isn't his father, he's not the only begotten son. And then there's nothing to believe in. That's why John writes at the end of his gospel in John 20, 31, these things I've written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name, in his name. Creator God made the universe. Do we agree? If Creator God made the universe out of nothing, he made Adam without a father and without a mother. It's not too hard for our God to bring the second Adam into this world with a human mother only and no human father. Jesus had a full human, a fully human and a fully divine nature at conception. That's the presentation in the New Testament. He was a real baby. I know you love that carol, Away in a Manger. And he's lying there in the manger, no crying he makes. You know any babies that don't cry? He was a real baby. He cried, need to be fed, need to be changed. He came into our world to live out the human experience fully. And he was really the son of God, the eternal second person of the triune God. And Mary really was a virgin until he was born. And then she had other children with her husband, Joseph. The final of our pictorial miracles this morning is the unbelievable. Mary asked the question, how? I'm a virgin. How could this happen? But she asked the question in such a way as is different from Zachariah before her. Zachariah asked the question in unbelief, asking for a sign. 
He wanted, he wanted God to prove that he could do what he said. Mary's not asking in unbelief. Mary's not asking how God can do it. She's asking the question, how can I do it? How can I do what you're asking me to do? I'm a virgin. You've asked me, you've, you've given me an assignment that I can't do. <laughs> I believe, but, but how? An ancient scholar coined a, in Latin, a, a good theological truth, fides quorens intellectum, which means faith in search of understanding. Mary believed, but she was asking for understanding. Mary, did you know? What did you know, Mary? And God graced her with the faith to believe and awarded her faith understanding. That's how it works. So many people have, have missed a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because they must first have all of the I's dotted and all of the T's crossed and understand all the manner of theological mysteries. Salvation is offered to us as a gift of, from God to believe. And he gives us the grace to believe and then graces us with understanding afterwards. That's what our lives are. And as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ as disciples of Christ, and years go by and, and God graces our faith with understanding we understand, we gather together, we sit around the scriptures, we learn, we believe, and God strengthens our belief with understanding by faith. Mary had to believe that the most holy God was going to be a human and be conceived in her and carried by her and delivered by her without a man. And her response, verse 38, I believe. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. She didn't ask for a sign, but God gave her a sign to boot <laughs> out of his grace. By the way, your cousin, Elizabeth, relative is is going to have a child in her old age. And she was said to be barren in her sixth month for nothing's impossible with God. Hey, why was Elizabeth barren until that moment? Because God is sovereign. And God's plan was to bring John the Baptist into the world at his appointed time. Grant favor to Elizabeth Demonstrate his sovereignty, demonstrate his goodness, which would become a sign to Mary. And she says this, but here, here's what, when Mary offered her life to the Lord, just as we do, that offering from her was a willingness to receive the immense hardships of God's favor. We don't regularly pay attention to that on this Christmas event because Christmas is just a time of joy and happiness and 
the Jesus child is coming and this is so wonderful. But there's a story uh, that continues on. When I say the greatest event of all time, it's a package deal. It's Christmas and it's Easter. It's the greatest thing that God has ever done for humanity. But her willingness to be the mother of Messiah would bring with it great hardship. We've already talked about the scandal of Jesus, the scandal on her life. But, but, but you realize that when she says, I am God's servant, may it be as you have said, but Mary, did you know, and, and this she didn't, that your faith, your loyalty to God would be required to be on high alert from this day forward for the rest of your life. And it wasn't too many days later where it was stated to Mary in Luke 2.35, and a sword will pierce your soul too. For Mary, the best of God's goodness, now listen to me, the best of God's goodness to her was the crucifixion of her son. Her very heart was pierced by the good work and will of God. My sister and I were exchanging emails last week um, just about the general hardships of life and people and the, heart, the frustrations and the pain, the deaths, families, And I wrote to her this, Mary was highly favored of the Lord and she loses her son and as her firstborn, her economic support by a horrendous execution in his 30s and that was it. She had him no more, at least in person. And that piercing of her heart was the greatest thing that ever happened for her and for you and for me. Because God is good when we can't see far enough along. And God is sovereign over all of the affairs of this world. There's no surprises. Nothing is randomly operating on its own authority. In your life or in my life, nothing. So, the takeaways are this, God is good. It was a time of anger and inconvenience and frustration and a despised town, a little-known woman, highly favored, a challenging message with very few circumstantial advantages, but a good God orchestrating and superintending all of it. And God is sovereign regardless of how difficult 
or unlikely the circumstance is. Elizabeth was barren, but John the Baptist had to be born. Mary was a virgin, but God wanted the incarnation. I don't know what your situation is. How difficult, how frustrating, how gloomy. God is sovereign. And the third is this, every child, born and yet to be born, deserves your maximum discipleship effort. I think what we learn here, there's no, there's no accident that God wants us to see the, the immense value of infancy to ministry. The potential, oh, yeah, there are no more messiahs. We don't need any more messiahs. We have the messiah. But every single baby is born with immense potential. And no child should ever be put at risk of that ministry potential through abortion, through divorce, through spiritual apathy, apathy, through spiritual complacency or sloppiness, no child. Whether you're single and hoping to be married and have children, or you're a parent, or you're just married, every child has immense potential to be a world changer for God. For we who know the Lord, we know that Christ is born in us by believing in him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. We are not born again by our physical ancestry, but rather by the life that is brought to us through the word of God, the seed of God. Nothing more to do than that, simply believe. Simply to state, as Mary did, I am a servant of the Lord, be it unto me as you have said. And what has God said? He said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Another ancient, Angelus Celestius, a German, 1624 to 1677, said this. Should Christ be born a thousand times anew, despair, O man, unless he's born in you. My question to everyone here assembled in this room and everyone watching online, has Christ been born in you? It's a gift of faith to believe. Simply believe that Jesus is who he said he was. Call on his name, that he died for you to pay the penalty of your sin and you will be saved. I love the third and fourth stanzas of a little town of Bethlehem. In the fourth stanza it says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. And then in stanza three, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. That's as simple as it is. Where 
Meek souls will receive him still. The dear Christ enters in. I trust that that's the testimony of your life. If it isn't, won't you receive him today? Receive him today. Well, there's still time. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. It's rich to our hearts. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who has brought to us salvation. We thank you for your mercy to forgive us of our sins. We thank you for your justice to have our sins paid for by the perfect substitute, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your enduring word that is implanted in faithful hearts and you bring it to life. To those who are granted faith to believe, you reward with faith to understand. And so, Father, because this is entirely from start to finish your work and not of ourselves, I pray that you would be pleased to favor with your grace people who don't know you this day all over the world for your glory's sake and a gift to the Lord Jesus Christ for his willingness to die for their sins. I thank you for our salvation that we enjoy. I thank you for this Christmas Sunday that we celebrate. And Lord, it truly is a joyous celebration. We know that you are good and we know that you are sovereign. We walk in very, very healthy places in your sight. And so we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.